as the Omicron variant of COVID-19 raged through Christmas of 2021. Calls were made across the West for a return to the lockdowns that most countries had only emerged from the previous summer. The popular show took a different approach and collected a group of academics to summarise the harms and collateral damage accrued during COVID lockdowns, a record of human blight that tended to be ignored or minimised by defenders of maximal COVID containment measures. For Christmas 2022, the popular show continues our ongoing work looking critically at COVID measures from a left-wing, democratic and populist perspective. If you would like to support our work and get access to our new COVID-critical mini-series in its entirety, please get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. The popular show would like to thank the charity Collateral Global for their support, about which a few words now. What happened in the Global South is unconscionable, and that's why we've, we've set up this charity Collateral Global to try and document what happened in the Global South, as well as, of course, everywhere else in the world, because it, it's important that we remember the cost of living crisis now is a direct result of these measures. And who does that affect? It affects the young, it affects the poor. These are the people we, we want to protect. These are the people we want to give hope to. Welcome back to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith, and I'm thrilled to welcome back, I think we can say friend of the show, Robert Freudenthal. How are you, sir? Yeah, great. Thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be here again. Robert is a, a psychiatrist in NHS London. Uh, you can read his work on the Brownstone Institute and the British Medical Journal. Uh, he has been one of the most incisive critics uh, of uh, COVID measures, uh, as well as an extremely humane one, uh, and he brings a unique wealth of experience working in psychiatry and in the public health service. Uh, before we get into COVID, this is a, a series on, on COVID that we've invited you to, to return to contribute to, but we, we've got extraordinary stuff happening in Britain's health service in general right now. Uh, I'm just going to get my little calendar of strikes. We've got, uh, as you can see here, We've got strikes um, with uh, 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 rail that's been going on through uh, uh, the winter and will be continuing over Christmas. We've got strikes coming up this week and next uh, and the following week uh, from highway workers, the Border Force, uh, Royal Mail, the Posties, driving examiners, baggage handlers uh, at the airports uh, and most controversially, I, I suppose, NHS workers, nurses um, yesterday uh, and next week. Uh, and ambulance drivers as well. Robert, I'm guessing that this, this uh, your own remit doesn't mean that you yourself have been striking, uh, but presumably you work with people who, who are, or am I wrong there? Um, well, it's correct. It's for, so it's the nursing profession that are on strike at the moment. Yeah. Although I must say that I'm, from my perspective, unfortunately, the nurses in the trust where I work are not on strike today. Okay. Uh, and the reason for that was that's, the, uh, not enough people responded to the ballot, as I understand it, to make the strike legal within the trust which I work, which I think also speaks to the reality that often in the in the general media or in the sort of general 
public conversation around nurses, healthcare professionals. We talk about it as though there's kind of a, a, a monolith, that there's, there is one nursing profession uh, and one NHS employer. This is not correct. So um, the, the NHS is, from my perspective, is more or less a, a brand, a sort of a franchise, if you like, um, which is made up of multiple different NHS trusts and also uh, private organisations and uh, charity sector organisations all will be working under this umbrella term, the NHS. So uh, unfortunately, but the trust where I work, the nurses did not go on strike. And, and speaking to some of my colleagues about why this why this was, so why, you know, what why this turned out and this transpired in this way. It, from what my colleagues told me, that that you know there, there was a lot of debate, obviously, within the nursing uh, groups where I work, uh, but and certainly some of the nurses which I spoke to were very disappointed not to be striking. Uh, but there was a lot of discussion around who would be looking after the patients where they were on strike and sort of people feeling guilty, really, to be withdrawing their labour. Uh, so so that is, that's, what trans that's what's transpired in my workplace. Yes, well, that's extremely interesting to hear. Um, this strike is going to stand or fall on the basis of the, the highly moralised way that nurses uh, and health workers in general are viewed, uh, of course, during the pandemic. We had this symbolic coming out and clapping uh, on a Wednesday evening for NHS workers. Um, and uh, uh, th that, that, I think, shows an attitude towards the NHS as uh, people imagine it as kind of more than a job, more like a, a, a calling uh, and, and have a special respect for NHS workers on those grounds. This strike, will, if it succeeds, it will succeed on the basis that the public feel that that highly kind of moralized view of these staff that they have deserves more money. If it mm -hmm. fails, it will be because people actually can't stomach the idea that these saintly figures would be so crude as to withdraw their labor and see themselves as part of the, the labor movement negotiating grubbly uh, for material gain. So I, I think it's, it's extremely interesting to watch this and watch, as it were, those attitudes towards nurses from the pandemic um, be asked to kind of put their money where their mouth is, but also the fact that those trusts whose, uh, whose nurses have managed to reach the strike ballot quota and have successfully gone on strike, that they are, they are sort of taking a big chance on, on the basis of those, those moralised kind of attitudes. I mean, let, let's just hear quickly from a, a couple of, uh, of the striking nurses now. I have colleagues who are single parents who are maybe struggling potentially to put food on the table for their children to pay their bills. So why are you guys out here today? Was it a tough decision to be here? It wasn't a decision taken lightly by the profession. I think it's years and years of um, kind of under inflation uh, pay rises, which actually means real-time pay cuts for us. But also I think it's the, the care that our patients are getting. It's really being affected um, and it's time that we send a message to those in charge that actually enough is enough. And it's not... So the, the analysis that you gave uh, that um, actually we've often got the wrong idea about the NHS, whether we're clapping for carers, whether we're, uh, you know, saying these people deserve a pay rise because they do this kind of otherworldly, almost kind of gift work of, of care for this institution, which 
uh, Thatcher's uh, cabinet minister, Nigel Lawson, referred to as Britain's real religion, um, or if we are you know, critical of the strikes, if we're on the right and, and think it's a, or just a general person who thinks that you know, they feel for nurses and so on, but they shouldn't be abandoning their patients. In each of those cases, those people are taking an attitude towards the NHS as a kind of coherent entity. And you're arguing that actually it's become something quite different. Is that a problem for those of us who you know, want a vastly improved care service and, and, and see ourselves as on the left and as defending the NHS? Is there a problem in the way that we tend to talk about the NHS? Well, I, I think so, yes, because I, I feel like um, we put a lot of sort of belief, power, influence into this entity that we describe as the quote-unquote the NHS, which doesn't, in, in my view, actually exist. You know, it's already been fragmented um, over the years and decades. And I think healthcare workers also can get into this position of of sort of dependency, if that's the right word, or of locating all the authority and all the sort of power in this nebulous term of the NHS, which, which in my view is, is sort of this distant um, figure which, which doesn't in fact exist. So if I could just say, say a couple of things about, about the strikes um, from, from my perspective. So I, I think that there's, there's, you know, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. You know, on the, on the one hand, of course, in my view, we have the right to unionize, to withdraw our labor in order to improve working conditions uh, if negotiations fail. And clearly the cost of living crisis is impacting you know, all, all, all of us and in particular uh, healthcare workers and, and, yeah, and particularly the you know, nurses and healthcare assistants who are paid less obviously than doctors. So of course they're going to be feeling the brunt of that more than the medical profession. So of course, People have the right and should, in my view, should be supported to unionize and withdraw their labor and, and strike. However, I think where I bristle a little bit is where we talk, where we conflate the strikes with saying that the strikes are happening for patient care. For me, mm. you know, I think the strikes, are, are, we should name what, what is happening, which is that people are asserting themselves, taking power and agency to improve their working conditions as everybody has the right to do and which we should support it. We don't need to add this moral dimension of saying it's for patient care in order to support the, in order to support the strikes. And then with regards to so improving, how we think about improving patient care, and I appreciate this will feel different for different specialties, and maybe I'm coming up this place and working in psychiatry, which is more of a soft skill, I suppose. There's less uh, technological needs than there might be in other medical specialties. However, there's lots of aspects of patient care, which we uh, is within our power and within our control to improve ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. We don't need to wait on the government to put down some sort of top-down policies, which probably will mistake the problem anyway, in order to improve patient care. That And, and then another aspect of this, I think, as well, is the what part of the lack of sort of goodwill that is, uh, and sort of un unwillingness, you know, the increased sort of demoralization and kind of poor uh, sense of well-being in, in, in the workforce is due to, in my view, the way that the healthcare organizations have become so fragmented and sort of, and even 
areas within the sort of bureaucracy of the individual trust become fragmented and outsourced, which makes them very, very challenging organizations to work for, irrespective of how much you're being paid. So, I mean, to give an example, it can be extraordinarily challenging to get hold of HR, for example. You know, these sorts of things are, are very, very frustrating for workers. You know, if you want to be able to claim your rights with regards to leave or parental leave or uh, discuss your pay, it's just very, very hard to do that because of these logistical barriers with different parts of each medical organization being outsourced. Um, and then of course, there is the issue, which I don't think, which I don't think we can forget, which is we are still within the same calendar year where NHS workers were threatened with a sack for refusing a vaccine or, or choosing not to be vaccinated. Uh, and I don't, it seems as though we want to kind of park that issue, but really yeah. isn't that where we go? And, um, mm. and I think that probably does play in, for some people, will play, play into their uh, sort of dis dissatisfaction with, with the workplace. But I do, I do think just, just the, the first point, I think, is very important, which I think it, as supporters of, if we are supporters of a Labour movement, then we should be able to make the case, as I think um, Mick Lynch was, was able to do, to make the case that for pe people should be able to uh, unionise and withdraw their Labour. We do not need to make a, a moral case for doing it in terms of patient safety or patient care. We should be able to fight for our working conditions regardless. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that is a crucial point. If this is uh, not going to be a blip in the history of the trade union movement, if there are renewed militancy post-COVID uh, lockdowns uh, that we're seeing across sectors and really across the West, if that is to be sustained uh, into a, a, a serious uh, a generational project, then uh, you're absolutely right that we need to drop the moralizing. We need to drop the kind of slightly airy ideas that individuals or, or, or individual sectors going on strike is going to have a kind of um, trickle-down effect into other areas or other kind of parts of what they do. It, it's it, They're not striking for patients and they shouldn't be striking for patients. Sure, we think it may well be good for patients to have a less harassed and, uh, and exhausted and, uh, and poorly remunerated workforce uh, uh, caring for them, but that is not what the strikes are for. I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, in the spirit of dropping the moralizing, um, I think that should also extend to the fact that the, the trade union movement needs to get a hell of a lot better on COVID and on challenging the precedents that were set during COVID, and that extends to being willing to 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 take uh, to take on the um, the sort of less morally comfortable causes, such as uh, opposing vaccine mandates, uh, uh, which, uh, as as you describe, it's unbelievable that that was only this year here in Britain. I appreciate our American viewers and listeners uh, uh, think this is normal, but in Britain, it already sort of feels like the idea that we were countenancing vaccine mandates seems like a, a barbarism from a worse time but it really was very recent um and then the the third um kind of area uh, uh, to which I, I think kind of dropping dropping the moralism um really applies is is uh, in the far more materialist analysis of the structures of the nhs that you've just given every time there's an election every time there's anything you hear the left saying we've got to get the tories out in order to save the nhs well there isn't an nhs to save at least not in the the coherent like sense in which that that phrase invokes the nhs it is as you're describing a, a highly fragmented uh, um and internally competing 
uh, uh, setup of interests, some of which can be described as public sector, much of which must be described as private sector already. Uh, and that brings me on to the, the Labour Party, which I think we also need to give some dishonourable mention to if we're discussing these NHS strikes, uh, because if we are anticipating uh, what currently seems likely a, a Keir Starmer uh, uh, um, uh, 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 government, uh, perhaps uh, sooner rather than later, then we need to remember that for all the blackmail we're going to be getting from the Labour Party about how we have to support Keir Starmer in order to defend the NHS, it was new Labour that brought about the situation in the NHS that you were describing. Uh, this is, um, I, I just got to read this. This is uh, from Open Democracy uh, back in 2014. Uh, they wrote, unfortunately, the last Labour government laid the groundwork for everything that the Tory-led then coalition is now doing to the NHS, market structures, foundation trusts, GP consortia, and the introduction of private corporations into commissioning, everything that Robert has just been describing for us, were all products of an ill-conceived labor vision of public service reforms. If we look back inevitably nostalgically to the high levels of investment in the NHS that went on uh, under new labor, they always came, especially in the post-2001 period, they always came with the proviso or the condition of the introduction of this kind of artificial market structure. Something had to be sold every time some money was put into it. Who gave uh, David Cameron permission to continue to put our NHS up for sale? Something that Margaret Thatcher never dared do it's a rhetorical question there, but the answer is Tony Blair. Now, what can we expect from uh, the next potential Labour government? Well, let's hear from Wes Streeting, the uh, shadow. You're also minister. talking, Wes Streeting. You're also talking, Wes Streeting, about using more the private sector more sure. in the NHS. Now, there's a concern that when there aren't enough staff anywhere, if you just bring in the private sector, all you do is you move staff to somewhere else, and you could actually make the problems worse. Well, two things. One, we already have staff who do a significant amount of work in the private sector. Uh, I'm not talking about robbing Peter to pay Paul. I'm talking about dealing with the fact that there are empty beds available in the private sector. And perhaps worse still, we have a two-tier healthcare system in this country today where those who can pay to go private and are seen faster and those who can't afford to pay are left lagging behind. It seems that West Streeting is actually describing the NHS much more honestly, the, the current structure of the NHS as this Frankenstein's monster of public and private, much more honestly than we usually hear from Labour politicians uh, and indeed the general left. And his, his picture is much closer to yours. But what do you think of the solutions that you're hearing and, and the, what that tells us about the future of the NHS? Yes, I think that's right. Where, where Streeting there is, is describing a, an accurate picture of the NHS where care is already being delivered by a combination of, of private and public providers. I think what, what's slightly missing the point, what, what he slightly misses there, and this is the experience that most um, of my colleagues would be able to attest to, is that the, the nature of the private sector organizations in the NHS is different to that to NHS providers. So, so to talk to the, my, my specialty, which is uh, eating disorders psychiatry, um, where inpatient eating disorder units in the UK, some will be in the NHS and some will be run by the private sector, by the Priory and other, other private organizations. And what would tend to happen is that the patients that would be that the private sector organizations would be willing to take because they will have a choice 
over which patients they accept or not as a private organization will be the ones which are more straightforward, easier to look after, more profitable for that reason, um, where they can expect certain outcomes uh, if a certain treatment plan is followed. Whereas mm -hmm. the NHS units will tend to keep the patients where they're, uh, where, you know, obviously speaking just very generally, but where there's more complexity, where there's more uncertainty, maybe where there's more behavioral difficulties or those sorts of things, which mean that the private sector groups would be less willing to take those patients on. So you, so you have this sort of splitting off of where the private sector will take the more profitable areas of the NHS and leave the more challenging bits bits behind. So I, I, I mean, that's not really captured in what what, uh, what Wes is saying there. So, I, um, so you know, but that, that's a real, a real issue really about what private sector organizations are willing, willing to do. And then you also have this other issue, which uh, is you know, very dominant in, in psychiatry, which is about certain areas of healthcare being far, far more profitable than others. So there's a real disparity over, over what enables you know, accumulation of capital or, or you know, the high salaries and so on. And so in the psychiatric context, essentially anything which involves labeling somebody with a one-off assessment, giving them a diagnosis and then prescribing as a sort of one-off encounter will always be more profitable than a more sort of complex um, meeting of somebody where they're at in their sort of community, with their family and network, acknowledging uncertainty, you know, you don't really get much, you can't really sort of commodify and label uncertainty and then sort of, uh, you know, match a pharmaceutical product to it. So any kind of the services which work more in the gray area or in the uncertainty, which of course is where most of healthcare sits, will be, will be less profitable. And so, you know, a very explicit example of this is that you'll see adverts, you know, in my, in my view, this is um, sort of, an, a, and abhorrence of psychiatric profession, really. But you will see adverts in the British Journal of Psychiatry for private ADHD or autistic spectrum disorder psychiatrists who will do an assessment remotely as a one-off appointment, give the diagnosis, and then discharge back to the GP to prescribe medication, or not, as the case may be. And and just doing these remote assessments, you they, they, these private healthcare companies are offering up to two hundred thousand pounds a year for people to do those sorts of assessments, which are also relatively low risk for the psychiatrists. Whereas working in a sort of community mental health team with people with psychotic disorders or schizophrenia or severe and enduring eating disorders, uh, you, you know, you would, would not be as profitable and therefore you would not see those, those really high salaries. So it's a really sort of interesting um, thing for us to reflect upon about these sort of different, you, you know, what diagnoses are more profitable than others and, and, and why? And what does that tell us really about what's going on? I mean, what you described there uh, as a situation where um, one-off or, or, or even serial interventions, often with a pharmaceutical dimension, will be uh, more affordable and more profitable, depending on which part of the um, institution you're, you're working in, uh, mm -hmm. than sustained, personalised care. And, and it's striking how frequently that is becoming the story of health crises uh, in, in in recent times. Uh, I, I mean, the 
uh, the, 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 the epidemic of overprescription of, um, of painkillers in, in America in the last decade uh, would be one case. Um, the, uh, the, the, we, we've got to kind of carry that into COVID, really, that the aspiration for universal vaccination and boosters instead of uh, following universal lockdowns, instead of anything resembling um, targeted protection and targeted care, even the recent closure of the Tavistock Clinic for, um, for, for uh, uh, youth in Britain requiring therapy and uh, gender transition treatment. It, it, the, the closure of that institution mm -hmm. was done on the grounds that the, the, the funding was inadequate and therefore there was a culture of over-prescription. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm sure you've got views on that. But mm -hmm. as far as I can see, the pattern emerging is we used to say, oh, isn't it terrible that somebody needs some sort of care, but the NHS won't, can't afford it because we don't give it enough funding. What is increasingly emerging as the picture is that a symptom or outcome of austerity and underfunding and privatization can be over intervention or irresponsible intervention or kind of blanket intervention when actually we, we shouldn't be doing that to people and it should be much more specifically targeted and potentially much more therapeutic over a longer uh, range period. I, I mean, what, what you were describing there about the, the, the current situation that you're uh, uh, struggling with at, at work right now, really, that seems like the whole kind of story of COVID in miniature to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's right, that's, that's right what you were, uh, um, you know, there's, there's sort of two ways, you know, both, both these things can be true, that there's sort of austerity, underinvestment in healthcare services, and there's sort of neglect or, or difficulties in accessing healthcare services. And there are also other parts of a healthcare service, and not necessarily just within the NHS, you know, a wider mm -hmm. healthcare culture, which yeah. is overexpansive, and people will get entrenched and entangled in it in a way that they don't wish to. So how do you, how do you tally that up with this other narrative of there being austerity and not enough? You know, so, mm -hmm. so these, these both things are true. And, I, and so I, I feel that as doctors in particular, healthcare workers in particular, that we have a bit of a responsibility here to try and help think through some of these uh, tensions, which often can, can get lost. And, you know, in the area of mental health care in particular, you know, there's some very obvious examples of that, you know, so, um, I mean, community treatment orders is one, which is the expansion of the Mental Health Act, but, you know, a few, now I think it was in 2008, perhaps, in the first decade of, of this century, where people, where the Mental Health Act was extended to people who are living in the community, despite not very much evidence that this would actually be protective or supportive in, in any particular way, but add increasing the overarching legality of control of psychiatric patients by the mental health system and with mental health law. Or, or, or you know, another way of looking at this is the sort of increased expansion in Discuss, discussion of mental health well-being and um, a much more sort of increasing awareness over the last few years about emotional well-being, about depression, anxiety, and how important it is to talk about these issues. However, that hasn't, although that has led to um, lots of commercial opportunities, advertising, increased, increased prescribing and antidepressants, it hasn't improved the lives of people with more severe and enduring no. mental illness. So people with schizophrenia or people on 
detained on mental health wards don't necessarily benefit from some of these sort of well-being campaigns which leave us all feeling a little bit more sort of subject to the medical gaze if that's the right way of putting it while without actually helping the people that probably need the help the most. You're getting us into some Foucauldian, yes. uh, as in Michel Foucault, uh, terminology there. And one of the things I like about you, Robert, is you've got a very good memory. And I saw you talking the other day about um, Richard Horton's editorial for for The Lancet, the, the medical journal, uh, from back in October 2020, which is quite a remarkable read to look back on. I, I mean, we, we're used to our side, as it were, the the uh, the, the 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 cranks uh, who are are critical of um, of uh, of COVID interventions and how they played out. Uh, uh, we're used to those people, our side, citing Foucault as a as a kind of diagnosis for you know what went on during lockdown and after. And we're also used to our side um, citing that whole kind of network of um, philosophers of biopolitics, which would also include Giorgio Agamben, one of the world's most cancelled men, uh, who had the temerity uh, to remain consistent. The guy had said that neoliberal capitalism uh, resembles the structures of Auschwitz. Uh, and then when uh, uh, his, um, his diagnosis proved to be actually far more true during uh, COVID than it was when he originally made it during the war on terror, because he said, I still think that, by the way, uh, everyone kind of dropped him and his translators had to do these whole kind of denouncements uh, uh, of him. But um, so we, we, we used to Foucault, Agamben and so on being on our side. But back in 2020, Horton was saying we've got to read Foucault in order to uh, defend lockdown, in order to defend um, uh, uh, even stronger lockdowns, as it were. Why is Foucault important for understanding COVID-19? The reason lie, reasons lie in the sinister way in which approaches to this syndemic are evolving. It is seen as acceptable to argue that older citizens at risk of COVID-19 are somehow less valuable to society than younger people, etc. COVID-19 has evolved to become a debate about the distribution of power in society central government versus local government, young versus old, a flash forward. The struggle for health is a struggle for human dignity, liberty and equity, but we must also meet our obligation to question power and its effects on truth. Now, reading that, uh, it, the last bit, I, I don't have a problem <laughs> with, but when I realise that he's saying it to defend lockdown and more lockdown, I, I, I find it really remarkable. Um, how do you sort of see that as symptomatic of the way in which many people working in the medical profession maybe don't like quite understand it in the right way and the way that you're advocating. Yeah, I mean, I think that editorial, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I'm not going to forget this because it was just, in my view, an extraordinary misreading of, of Foucault. I mean, just couldn't get it more wrong as far as as far as I'm concerned. And But I do think it reveals the, the mindset, which I recognise, you know, I think I recognize it because obviously I've trained in, in, in this environment. So I, I sort of know how people think. Um, and it's medics and healthcare professionals. Yeah, I'll maybe speak mostly to my own profession, to doctors. You know, like to see themselves as the underdog. And that's what uh, Horton is describing there in the Lancet editorial. You know, it's the, the, the doctors who are mistreated by the government, mistreated by management, mistreated by bureaucracy. You know, and some of that is, is of course, 
um, true in that you know, working conditions aren't great in the NHS, but it does completely, it's completely devoid of any class analysis. You know, most doctors are from, you know, doctors is one, uh, medical profession is uh, one of the most privileged professions that there is, I think after maybe secondary to journalism in terms of proportion of people that went to fee paying schools, for example. You know, it's an ex exceptionally privileged profession and also well-paid profession. And so the idea that we could paint ourselves as the underdog that need to speak truth to power as though we're somehow um, apolitically removed from the economic and power structures within society is just completely misguided. But I do think that, that there are some there's some aspects of the medical profession that can lead you to that way of thinking. You know, not least that you are very well protected from economic and market pressures uh, as a doctor. You know, have a very secure job. You also remain uh, because of the extended training, particularly for specialists, you remain in a situation of um, not very much sen seniority for a very long time. So it's very easy to see yourself in this sort of underdog type way, but then it means that you are completely blinkered, you know, with this, this mindset, completely blinkered from seeing what's actually happening in the world around you, which is that for, you know, two, up to two years, everybody's lives in the country were governed by medical needs. So yes, it's true that doctors may not have been, you know, with Boris Johnson writing the lockdown rules in parliament, but that the rules were very much based on, pri on primary medical risk. So yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary misreading of Foucault. It's really, it's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, it, it is because Foucault's whole analysis in The Birth of the Clinic and the History of Madness is that the doctors then thought that they were challenging the, the abuses of power by governments and states and thought that they were bringing in a more humane and technocratic and science-led approach to medicine uh, as against, you know, in, in the history of madness, the absolutist states that just wanted to, uh, um, you know, lock mad people up, etc. Uh, but in doing so, they, no matter what they thought they were doing, they created whole new areas where the gaze of power could now shine in so like the, the whole point is that for Foucault power is almost retrospective it doesn't matter like what agency you thought you were acting in the interests of what you did has broken open kind of new uh, uh, vanguards that that, mm -hmm. that, that, are, that are now under a kind of control control which is not located only in one single place the government it is now spread across multiple complex uh, and often competing uh, centres. I make it sound like the semi-privatised NHS, in fact, <laughs> that, that you started this off by describing. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a really, dare I say, symptomatic uh, misreading and almost a necessary misreading. You would have to read Foucault like that if you were uh, uh, the editor of, of, of The Lancet in, in, in 2020. Um, I, I, I got you on the show, I think, was it in, in May, maybe? Uh, it, it was certainly in late, late spring or early summer. And, and then I, I was kind of asking, like, what has it been like working um, in psychiatry during this period? What, what, uh, what can you sort of chart in terms of the, the changes over uh, the years that, that you were working and also the, the effects? Some of them were not ones at all that I predicted that you described. I encourage people to scroll back. Uh, uh, through and check out that earlier interview with Robert. But um, may maybe, you know, this is uh, uh, Christmas is a time for 
reflection and we're, we're speaking to uh, a lot of COVID commentators uh, this week and next about how they feel 2022 um, uh, uh, developed the, the discourse and practice of COVID. I, I just wondered if you, if you had anything to kind of update us with on how um, the experience of the uh, of, of the uh, of, of NHS psychiatry has been since we last spoke, uh, and also you know I mean we were staring down the barrel of uh, of mm. Omicron lockdowns this time last year, and if it wasn't for Boris's little tea parties, then we would have ended up in lockdown. And mm. yeah, so uh, it's it's a very it's a very different picture, but also possibly not as different as we think. Yes, yeah. Well, I think what you know, one thing is about how little people wish to talk about it, and um, and I do un understand where that comes from because I think the experience we went through was you know was so awful and traumatic in so many ways that people just want you know want to move on and sort of address what whatever's happening next, but. Uh, my my concern about that from a sort of psychiatric perspective is that well where where what's being left unsaid what's being left unspoken and where are the structures for reflection and sort of learning about what's happened which i think is essential if we're going to prevent it from happening again in in, in the future so um i mean that that's sort of what one one point i mean in particular around the the vaccine mandates you know which was just ex extraordinary i mean i know we've been through this story before but it was just extraordinary how in the run up to the mandate being removed you know there was a series of uh, in, in trust where I work and was working at the time, you know, there was a series of, you know, messages of calls about how absolutely essential it is to take the vaccine in order to uh, protect your patients. And, you know, it was a sort of professional duty to do it. And then suddenly it was like, oh, no, actually, it, it doesn't really matter anymore. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, so yeah. To, to, have, to, to have put all of that sort of emotional uh, labor and sort of blackmail really onto staff and then not have any way of processing what happened um, is, is you know misguided I don't think those things just go away as much as as much as some might like them to uh, I mean another you know, you know the other sort of obvious thing is that in certainly in mental health care we're still seeing the consequences of the lockdowns you know, every, every day, really. So working in, in eating disorders, still now I'm seeing new patients referred to the service who either they had an existing eating disorder which deteriorated during the lockdowns or, you know, new and new disorders developed during the lockdowns. And I, and, and I, I sort of think as well, you know, what can we, I think it's very interesting to think about what, what can we, what can we learn from that? You know, what is it about, you know, so, so with eating disorders in particular, there's been lots of um, reporting on the increase in, in eating disorders during lockdowns. But I don't think there's been a huge amount of reflection about, about why, you know, why this particular mm. disorder, why, why has it been so, so particularly difficult for, for eating disorders? And, you know, maybe I can share a couple of reflections about that, Please which do. I've been thinking with, with colleagues also on, on this topic. And, and for me, you know, one of the reasons why I chose to work in eating disorders is that I think it really speaks to providing care, that intersection of mental health care and physical health care. So we can, you know, can learn a lot about our bodies and about our mindset from this, this group of patients and from this particular disorders. And I think there is something about um, being detached from your body, so not being 
not being in touch with your body, with your bodily needs, that sense of connectedness that we all need between to mind and body, which was completely attacked by the lockdown. So when we, yeah. the lockdowns were, for many, a, a dis, disembodied experience, you know, suddenly all these bodily functions like um, relational, our relational beings, the things that we enjoy doing, like listening to music, dancing, all of those things, they all, they all were, were criminalized, but also said that actually we don't, we don't need them. You know, we can do them via a screen. And so, so there was, it was a real attack in my view on that sort of mind-body relationship. And for, for me, I think that's probably one of the factors that's playing into the, the increased prevalence of eating disorders, you know, along with the fact that, of course, if we're living in a very restrictive society, then it's inevitable that some people would develop restrictive pathologies of which eating disorders are one, but obviously there are others as well. So, you know, that's, that's one sort of consequence that we're seeing is, is you know, it's a, it's a pressure on, on, on the services really, just from the increased prevalence of some of these disorders. And then within the uh, organizations which I work, I I'm sure this is similar elsewhere, is that some of the structures which were undermined by the lockdowns have, have still not fully returned. So, uh, just, you know, for example, group meetings, you know, they're still happening online, some of them, which may make it a lot harder for people to get to know each other, to um, meet people outside of their teams, you know, so, and that will inevitably sort of fray working relationships and communications across teams and lead to that sense of sort of disconnected dissatisfaction that so many, so many people experience. So I think all, all of these things are still sort of going on. Um, and then I, I suppose another another sort of thing to think about is, is I suppose it's also not that surprising about how people don't wish to talk about what happened and reflect upon it. I mean, after all, you know, denial is one of our most common defense mechanisms. So it's yes. something that we all, we all reach for um, in one, one form or another. It's, it's very um, hard, I think, to take responsibility and to feel take ownership over the decisions that we made as individuals and as a group over that period of time. And I think when we look at previous historical events where which you were significant um, oppression happened or significant or society took a, a totalitarian or authoritarian bent, it often was the case that it took many years for these historical events to be really kind of chewed over in the public sort of discourse, if you like. So I think we probably, I suspect that um, maybe in a few years time, we'll see a bit more discussion and reflection on, on what happened. And I, I, I imagine for, we'll still probably have quite a while where people don't wish to talk, talk about some of those decisions. Well, we're talking about it here on The Popular Show. Uh, I can't thank you enough, Robert Freudenthal, for rejoining us on the programme. Uh, your details will be in the show notes, and, and I hope people are going to look you up because you really are one of our undersung uh, and most valuable commentators. Uh, and, and thanks for the, the inside look on the NHS strikes as well, uh, which have our full popular show solidarity. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you.